Welcome to the Lagan Valley Vineyard Podcast. We are a community passionate about seeing the Lagan Valley area filled with the presence and the teachings of Jesus. If you would like to connect with us or if we can help you in any way, please visit our website, laganvalleyvineyard.com. Good morning, good morning. Folks, you're so welcome to the vineyard. If we haven't met before, my name's Andy. I'm one of the pastors here. If you are a guest or a visitor or you've just been around us for a little while, you need to know that here at Lagan Valley Vineyard, we do actually have an agenda. And uh, it's my privilege actually to introduce Pete and Sarah Portal to you this morning. Pete and Sarah uh, live, do life, follow Jesus in a place in Cape Town called Manenberg. Pete's going to explain a little bit more about that in a minute. But we're really excited about having them with us this morning because if you've been around any length of time, you'll have heard us say this statement several times. Andy, throw this up on the screen for me. This is the agenda that we have here at Lagan Valley Vineyard. This is what we're trying to do together as a family. Uh, This is our metric, if you like, for what discipleship actually is, that together we would learn to surrender our entire lives to the rule and reign of Jesus. And with him, empowered by the Holy Spirit, learn to demonstrate the presence of that rule and reign in and through our lives and our communities for the flourishing of absolutely everyone. No, that's a mouthful. This is basically the summary of everything that we're trying to do, that Christianity is not sort of, let's just invite Jesus into our heart, try to read our Bibles in the morning and kind of generally good people. It's about, fundamentally, it's about surrender. And Pete and Sarah model this in the most profound and powerful way and uh, are gonna kind of walk us through some of their journey this morning. I should say too that Pete's just written a book called No Neutral Ground. It is on sale today at the back of the room uh, for 10.99. There are limited numbers here in the building, so can I encourage you to grab one of those before you leave? Uh, But without further ado, would you join me in welcoming Pete Portal as he comes? Let's, let's pray for, for Pete and let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for uh, all that you're doing in Pete and Sarah's life. And Father, we honor their obedience to your voice for their embracing of the cost of discipleship. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fill him freshly right now. Release him to speak what's in your heart and your mind to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Annie. Great to see you all. How are we doing? Good, good. Sarah and I have been on the road for the last five weeks um, and have been traveling up and down uh, the UK. And um, when we say we're going to Northern Ireland, and people go, where? We go, oh, we're going to Lagan Valley Vineyard. And everyone goes, oh, you're so lucky. We know that place. Or we've heard of that place. Or we know Andy and Dana or someone in the team. And um, you're so lucky you're going to have such a great time. And so we feel incredibly blessed to be here with you guys today. Um, so thanks for having us. Um, I have um, changed what I want to speak about this morning. Um, so we're going to get something nice and fresh. Um, and, um, but before that, I want to just kind of introduce myself. This is me, obviously, Pete, Sarah. Um, I'm from London, southeast London. Sarah's from Cape Town, and um, uh, we live in Cape Town. And we live in a community, as Andy said, called Manenberg. Uh, Manenberg is a community that shouldn't really exist. Um, it was built in the 60s by the apartheid government. Um, uh, apartheid is Afrikaans for separateness. And the apartheid government were white supremacists who used their reading of the Bible, check that, so their theology to 
uh, forcibly remove people of color from their homes at the foot of Table Mountain in Cape Town, 20 kilometers out of the city, and um, split up families. And you know, people, some people came back from work uh, one day, and their home had been bulldozed. A truck was going out of town, and they had to hop on it, because that was that. And so we um, live in this community, Manenberg, where people were forcibly removed. Some people like to minister amongst the movers and shakers of society, and we have chosen to locate ourselves amongst the moved and the shaken of Cape Town, based on the premise that if Jesus lived anywhere today in Cape Town, which is the most racially segregated city in South Africa, which is the most economically unequal country on earth, he would probably live in Manenberg or somewhere like it. And the reason I say that is because today, if you head to Cape Town and you try and hire a car or you talk to a local and say that you're going to uh, Manenberg or you stay in Manenberg, generally what you're met with is uh, uh, gasps of incredulity and Manenberg, can anything good come out of Manenberg? And that should ring a bell for us, right? Because we've heard that said before about a little known place called Nazareth. And I hope we all know, and maybe you don't, and if you don't know, you're going to find out that really good things came out of Nazareth through a man called Jesus. And he's the one we trust, and he's the one that we follow. And he's the one that called us to live uh, uh, in Manenberg and open our home and spend the entirety of Sarah's inheritance after her mother left her a legacy when her mother sadly died uh, seven years ago. And, we, and God said to us, will you use your entire inheritance, Sarah, to buy a home and create a habitation for my spirit where the young men in gangs and drugs in Manenberg can come and find their belonging, believe in me, and become all I've created them to be. Sarah and I are part of leading a church called Tree of Life. Tree of Life is a part of the 24-7 prayer movement. And we, our home, we call Crew 62. And we welcome young men. And we say those who the world has thrown out, marginalized, demonized, or incarcerated are most welcome to come and live with us. Whether you're on Unga, which is street heroin, which is really just heroin diluted with rat poison, um, and that gives you stomach ulcers along, amongst other things, which the only way to take away the pain of that is to take more heroin and get increasingly addicted and hopeless. Or crystal meth, where people actually take so much of it in Manenberg, sometimes the guys have been known to die because their bodies have physically shut down because they didn't sleep for 10 days. So addicted were they to this drug. And I hope we recognize that no one starts this uh, lifestyle of joining a gang uh, and just to give you a little broad sweep of some of the uh, extent of the gang pandemic in Cape Town, you've got the hard livings, the Americans, the junky funky kids, the clever kids, the DMX, you've got the F the world kids, the luxury kids, the Westsiders, the rude boys. Um, gangs prevail on every street corner. Every turf is contested. And really, it's a fairly inevitable response to a collective trauma of forcibly being removed. It makes total sense, doesn't it? That if someone comes and bulldozes your house and throws you out somewhere else, that you will defend your turf like nothing else. 
It makes total sense, doesn't it, that and on a day like Father's Day, this is particularly apt, that where a pandemic of fatherlessness has swept a nation, and I know that this is the thing guys were talking to me about in Lurgan, and I imagine it's the same in Lisbon to an extent, that fatherless, the pandemic of fatherlessness creates a place where young men particularly are looking for a place of belonging. And the counterfeit to belonging is gangsterism. It's a demonic covenant that basically uh, promises you the benefits of belonging and being fathered. And my goodness, the leadership structure in gangs, we could learn a lot from them in the church. The discipleship of hitmen training up younger guys from the age of 12 to shoot, murder, and kill their enemies is um, astounding and demonic in about equal measure. So this is where we've chose to locate ourselves. Who's been to Cape Town before? Anyone? couple of people, chances are you've not been to Manenberg and you've probably not heard about Manenberg because the thing about the narratives told about cities is that we actually, there's no such thing as the voiceless, by the way, but there is such a thing as the preferably unheard. And the systems in South Africa, whilst the law of apartheid was uh, dismantled 25 years ago by Nelson Mandela and uh, the rest, uh, uh, we all know that sort of miraculous transition to democracy, the spirit of apartheid continues today. And that's one of the things that Sarah and I, theologically and politically and everythingly speaking, our convictions say it's not a radical move to the edges of society. It's not a radical move to open our homes to the demonized and addicted, to the violent and the criminal. It's not a radical move at all. It's a logical and reasoned heart response to the message of the gospel, that Jesus Christ swapped the splendor and comfort and glory of heaven and came down and saving humanity looked like moving towards brokenness, despair, pain. And so we just say we want to live as congruently a life as possible to the life that Jesus modeled to us in the gospels. And so today I... Um, Want to get into um, uh, uh, the, the story of Joseph, and we're going to have a little. We're going to have a little tour through a, a, a slightly peculiar passage in Isaiah, and then come round full circle. And we're going to be talking about process. And I want to share some of the process that God has had Sarah and I on the last ten years as we've been doing this. But before we open scriptures together, um, there's a little two-minute movie I'd love to show you that gives an idea of some of the faces and places uh, of what we'll be talking about today. Our policy is one which is called by an Afrikaans word, apartheid. What will it take to change the story? vision from the heart of God, growing community and restoring worth in forgotten places. We all have a journey marked out ahead. There will be both victories and tragedies. Where will yours lead and what trials will you face along the way? The voice of God deep within is beckoning us into adventures as yet unknown, wholehearted lives so costly but relentlessly hopeful. Could another world be calling a compelling new reality where walls are torn down and friendships built, where myths are exposed and unheard voices listened to? The 
old order of things made new. But what of the cost, the accusation, the despair, the choruses of it can't be done? We can choose what to believe, to rise up above the pointing fingers of accusation and the shrugs of indifference. The stories we live in are the stories we live out. What if yours is a story that the world is crying out to hear? Because ultimately, there is no neutral ground. God's got each one of us on a process and he's got a glorious destiny for each one of us and each one of us has a unique bespoke tailor-made opportunity to partner with him in the Great Commission and in fact the message today is not you should all be moving to live with gangsters and drug addicts far from it can you imagine what a tragedy it would be for Lisbon if you all decided you were called to Manenberg, and what a nightmare it would be for Manenberg, <laughs> in the nicest possible way. But I want to share a little bit of the story of how I ended up from um, London moving to Manenberg, and then, as I say, follow some of Joseph's story, and um, would then love to um, end by ministering into uh, whoever, whoever feels prompted to come up and be prayed for. Um, as I say, there's a great commission, and each one of us has our part to play in it. And if we don't, and if we miss it, then there's actually a, a U-shaped hole in the great commission that will not be filled. That is God's great compliment to us, that we get to collaborate with his cry and with his call to restore humanity to himself and make all things new. That's not a heavy burden. That is the kindness of God. That is absolutely the most exciting thing you could ever spend your life doing. We were talking in between services and Andy was saying to us that the purposelessness of society is just unbelievable. Well, let it be known today, if you're feeling like you're drifting or purposeless, if you feel slightly cynical about the way the world's going, um, I was going to say there are no government solutions to the problems. Well, there's no government. Do you know I mean? Like, this is another level. But what we get is to partner with the voice of God, his plans as yet unknown, the adventures he's hidden, the adventures that he has tailor-made and bespoke for each one of us, hidden in the heart of this good, eternal father. Could you imagine anything more exciting than that? And can you see how it really has nothing to do, in one sense, with Manenberg? 
This is all to do with you and God. And when we get that vertical thing, the friendship with God, we never graduate from friendship with God. Jesus says, I no longer call you slaves, I call you friends. And friends are in on the, on the master's business, on the father's business. And so it was when I was a 23-year-old student at Edinburgh University and a friend came up to me at the end of a particularly boring theology lecture and he said, why don't you come to Cape Town with me? I thought, well, that's slightly weird. I don't need that well. Um, Will anyone else be coming? And he was like, yeah, yeah, short-term mission trip. I'm organizing one. We're going to go to Cape Town and we're going to um, go and visit prisoners in prison and share the gospel with them and bring them to Jesus. And I thought, "Uh, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. Can't sweeten the deal by prison visits. Uh, I was working for CBBC at the time, uh, uh, children's TV, and spent most of my life um, assembling giant pogo sticks for the live studio show and uh, working out how we were most effectively going to gunge the rather overbearing parents of naughty children. And so for me, the idea of moving to uh, Cape Town for six weeks with a bunch of people from the Christian Union, which I was kind of so in my kind of... um, rather insecure, but trying to be cool, student way, trying to distance myself from. Um, It didn't sound like a great idea or a particularly productive use of my university holidays. And um, he said, and and I'm sure each one of you at some stage in your life will have fallen prey to this. It's called the Christian trump card. He goes, will you at least pray about it? (laughs) Oh, for goodness sake, I can't not. Okay, fine. Went and sort of mumbled a rather disinterested prayer to God, and nothing happened. Phew. Uh, Until a week later, the NHS, praise God for the NHS, love the NHS. We were hearing about a friend whose son's life has been saved by the amazing NHS. Don't take it for granted. It's wonderful. Um, And they sent me a letter a week after this rather um, half-hearted prayer saying... um, We've got an operation uh, date scheduled uh, for you. After nine months of waiting, I had an old rugby injury where my shoulder used to dislocate multiple times and it needed to be pinned in place. And so I picked up the letter and I ran to my friend waving it saying, the Lord has answered. He's used the NHS and he's answered my prayers. The operation date was smack bang in the middle of the uh, 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 six-week trip. So I said, that's it, done and dusted, not coming. And then he goes, oh, why, don't you, why don't you phone up the shoulder consultant secretary and just see if they can change the date? And I was like, oh, fine. I was so confident that this was an answer to the prayer. I was like, whatever, I'll do anything. I don't care. I don't want to go to South Africa. So I phoned um, the shoulder consultant secretary and I said, um, hi there, just ringing up to see, you know, it's probably impossible, isn't it? But ringing up to see if it's possible to change the date of my shoulder operation. Can't imagine it's possible though, can And she goes, uh, no, it's going to be a little bit difficult. Why though, can I ask? And uh, I clocked that she had a slightly strange accent to my end. And, and I said, well, a friend wants me to go on a, 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 a trip to South Africa. And she goes, oh, I'm from South Africa. What sort of trip's that? And I was like, a short-term Christian mission trip? She goes, I'm a Christian. Where to? Where are you going? I said, uh, it's a town outside Cape Town called Paul. And she goes, I'm from Paul. I think God wants you to go on this trip. And my spirit leapt and my heart sank. And I realized that this was a holy hijack. It was a setup from the Father himself. And it didn't feel that great to uh, 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 eat my humble pie and go and tell this friend, okay, I'm, I'm going to come. God's spoken clearly. He kind of, uh, and sort of angel ended up sort of kicking me onto the plane at the end and um, sat there rather uh, 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 
well, curious, honestly, about why on earth God wanted me there. And then for the next six weeks, I don't know if you've been or Googled Cape Town, but it's really, it's, you know, it's mountains, it's vineyards, it's beaches. It all looked very nice online. I thought, great. Well, you know, you can sort of dip in and out of the prison and then go to the beach. Um, and um, <laughs> uh, little did I know, we were staying in a community called Bontival, which is very similar to Manenberg. It's really quite genuinely a sort of carbon copy because apartheid... Satan can't create, right? He just distorts, manipulates, and bastardizes what already exists. And so when apartheid built these ghettos for people of color, that was their only crime. They weren't white. And theologically, apartheid couldn't stand it. And we went to stay in Bontival. And I got mugged by a, <laughs> a pair of basically 12-year-olds, but eyes popping out of their heads. And um, uh, we had break-ins. We had gang fight. Heard the the guns going off around us, and um, it was all rather intense. But um, at the beginning of the trip, this, these two rather intense types in our group of nine said, oh, brilliant, we're staying in a three-bedroom house, and there are nine of us, five guys, four girls. Why don't we make the third bedroom a 24-7 prayer room? Which I'd never heard of before. I thought that sounded a sort of really intense thing that a sort of Christian with no social life would end up doing. It's like, what are you doing tonight? Oh, no plans, no, I'm probably, no praying 24-7, yeah. All you mean is no one's phoned you and you feel a bit lonely. But that was, that, was my, that was my sense. But actually, we got back from the township. We got back from prison each day where we'd become these um, sort of teenage and people in our early 20s kind of soaking up all the trauma and all the horrific stories of living as uh, oppressed people in a society that still really mirrored the law and uh, the spirit of apartheid. And we'd come back and we'd sit in that room and we'd weep. We would absolutely, I just wept for six weeks. And it was only when I went back to London and told everybody about this incredible mountaintop experience I'd had in Cape Town and how unjust it was and this, that everyone couldn't care less, I figured, okay, well, I can't actually demand that they respond, but what I do know is that God has exposed me to something and that he's deposited his heart in me for it, and I have a responsibility to respond. I didn't want to be there in the first place, but he hijacked me and then showed me in the, in the eyes of these young men particularly such a desperation. The church wasn't cutting it, frankly. People didn't want to be uh, in these places. And the churches that were in such communities were like, right, get in, quick, close the door. Don't want those guys in because everyone was so traumatized. And I began to imagine, well, what would it be like if those young guys who mugged me and whose language I couldn't speak and didn't really know what the nuances of what gangs they were in and all of that, what would it look like if actually I could move in and buy a house there and say, you know what, just come on in and eat, let's talk. There's this guy, Jesus, he's got the most amazing, tailor-made, bespoke plan for your life. There's destiny in your heart and seeds of greatness that he planted since before time began. And you can know all of that. And you don't need sort of medical help because actually when you, when you begin to become all that God's created you to be, you will outgrow the addiction, the cravings, and the withdrawal by the power of the Holy Spirit. That was my hope. I didn't know if that worked at that point. But we've begun to see that actually it does. We don't have any medical solutions to addiction. And I'm not saying that any of that's wrong. That's great. Praise God for medicine. But what we see is young men in, on heroin or crystal meth coming off sometimes, sometimes not, through the power of the Holy Spirit. We had a young man called Marwan who came out of Islam, heroin, and uh, a gang called the Dacha Kopa, and he, which doesn't translate well, it literally means the, the potheads. Doesn't sound so badass, does it, in English? Um, and... Uh, <laughs> 
sounds like, yeah, no, I'm not going to go there. Any, um, and, um, and he came out of Islam uh, uh, when he, he came to live with us, and he was cold turkey off heroin. This was a couple of years ago. And um, we, were, we, we kind of raised the spiritual temperature in the house when you guys come in and stay with us. And so we were worshiping as he came in, and there was a song called No Longer Slaves. I'm sure you've all heard of, and I'm probably sick of by now, but um, we do that, don't we? We butcher all the good ones. But... Um, he came and he was lying in his bed, cold turkey, he was shaking, shivering, completely in pain, you know, and like cold turkey is, is messy. Anyway, um, when the song started playing, he, it played and he was looking pretty chilled. And then it stopped and he just groaned from his bed, play it again. So we played that song again. And, and, and we're like, he's a new guy, he gets to do whatever, that's fine. Um, Ended. Play it again. Okay, fine. Marwan, why do you like this song so much? What, what is it about this song? This was a Muslim guy. I'd never heard worship. And he goes, when the song plays, my withdrawal pains go. He was delivered that evening when we got him to uh, our little coffee shop that we used to run. And we had a worship night there. And he was wrapped up in a duvet. And he came shivering still because the song had been turned off. And... Um, and he came, and the, the first song that evening that the worship band played was No Longer Slaves. And he jumped out of his duvet, jumped into the middle of a room, a Muslim who'd never been to church before, didn't know what was going on, but just said, somebody pray for me. We gathered around him and we prayed. We laid hands on this young, heroin-addicted Muslim man. The pains immediately went. They never came back. He received the gift of tongues that evening, was baptized in the Holy Spirit and went on to become one of the most inspiring young men ever. That was the dream that God had placed in my heart back in 2007. The ones and the twos coming to know Jesus and being the generative change in their community. The process that God had me on from 2007 till then until present day is messy and has a whole bunch of ups and downs. But that seems pretty biblical to me and we need to begin to own the messiness and the pain of the process. Sarah and I have been in Manenberg 10 years now and in the last six months we've had more death threats than we have ever. Is it getting any better? No, it's getting a little more intense. Uh, at the end of every um, year, for the last few years, we prayed a prayer that uh, guarantee 100% doesn't work. And um, it is, Lord, we are exhausted. We would love it if next year could just be a little more easy. Amen. <laughs> and we've begun to see actually it doesn't work. The chaos doesn't stop. The world doesn't magically right itself. But what we have begun to pray instead is, Lord, we understand that there's chaos. We understand that there's pain. We understand that actually all the most beautiful people in life have gone through the desert, the wilderness, back, uh, uh, backsliding and relapse and all the rest of it and have come out of it and have been made beautiful and given the character of Jesus through the redemption of the very suffering and chaos that they've come through. Therefore, God, won't you increase our capacity and grow our character to be more like you so that we can navigate and outgrow the chaos in in a way that doesn't spill mess onto each other and everyone else. It's a bit more of a complicated prayer, but theologically it's grounded and it's working, which is, uh, which is good. And so when people do threaten us with death, and you know, we've had, as I say, in the last six months, we've had two different death threats. What we begin to realize is actually you cannot, you cannot threaten us with heaven. You can't threaten me with heaven. I'm invincible to you. I'm not meaning to be flippant here. But when we really understand that with Paul in Galatians 2.20, that it's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us. 
We died a long time ago, church, and if someone holds a gun to your head and threatens to kill you, my goodness, it would be sad. My goodness, the world will call it tragic, but my goodness, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and the legacy that your life will live will be absolutely invincible for anything Satan can try and throw at you. The harvest that would come if someone did kill us in Manenberg is one that would redeem all sorts of sorrow in time. That's not to be flippant. That's not to say, okay, let's be sort of, um, what's the word, masochistic and self-flagellating and sort of look for kind of weird situations to get in so that someone can shoot us. Absolutely not. It's just a holy reverence for the fact that heaven is real, that salvation is the most true experience you can ever receive, and that you cannot threaten us with heaven. Amen? I'm going to kick the stand off. No, I'm zoomed in. That was a way how not to force a dramatic point through, kick the stand and then mess up. The point remains. <laughs> so Joseph, we've all heard of Joseph, potentially some of us, most of us. Joseph was a guy in, um, in Genesis um, and um, he had some dreams. As a 17-year-old, I think it was, he had some dreams and he was dreaming about ruling and reigning. God was speaking to him in these dreams about ruling and reigning, about influence and dominion, about power. And Joseph, in his teenage naivety, and I'm not calling you naive if you're a teenager, but he was, um, blurted out <laughs> these dreams to his brothers, who it didn't go down particularly well with. We know how they responded. They were going to kill him, in the end didn't, left him for dead in the bottom of a pit. Uh, he was then sold into slavery, right, and ended up at a, play, at a guy called Potiphar's house. Slightly funny name, Potiphar. Sounds a bit like Potiphar. Just let it out. Like, it's just, let's just acknowledge that it sounds slightly funny. Um, so he went from this destiny of dreams, God giving him dreams of ruling and reigning. This is what the father said over his life. What happened? He stewarded it badly and naively, and the very dreams that he had, his whole life went completely against the destiny that had been spoken from God over him. So he ends up down, 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 actually at the bottom of a pit. But if any of you are in a pit or have been in a pit or uh, uh, feel like in the bottom of a deep, dark hole, you need to know that P-I-T stands for profit in training. God will use that pit. The deeper and the darker the pit you might find yourself in, the more the capacity it has for the living water of Jesus to fill it and for it to be a well of refreshing, not only for you but those around you. God will redeem your pit, I promise you. I promise you. And so Joseph finds himself in a pit, right at the bottom of things. He then gets sold to slavery, even worse. But then because of the favor of God and the destiny of his life, it's like trying to push down a beach ball underwater. It just pops back up to the top, and he actually gets put in charge of Potiphar's entire household, learning the bit... Don't know what that was. Learning the business and administration required to actually rule and reign later on. And then what happens? Potiphar's wife comes and tries to seduce him. But because Joseph's the same guy in private as he is in public, and that's a great measure, by the way, of favor. If you want to increase your favor, and I, I do believe this is true, close the gap between who you are in public and private. The Spirit is looking for congruent believers, those who live a life of congruency and integrity when no one else is watching. Are we perfect? Absolutely not. Are we trying to close the gap between the life of the early church and us? Absolutely. 
Do we have our own rubbish and mess? Totally. But we're on a journey of congruency. And Joseph had such integrity that when this woman tried to seduce him, he actually ran off. What does she do? She then accuses him of raping her. So now he's been sold to slavery, bottom of a pit, Potiphar's house, back up. But then he's now a rapist in prison as a slave. I mean, you cannot get lower. It's impossible to, it's impossible to overstate how low he went. And he's, ending, he's languishing in prison, sitting there and not knowing what to do. But again, in his anonymous years, in the darkness, in incarceration, where he's been overlooked and subjugated, he actually doesn't become bitter and resentful. He doesn't say, oh God, I did believe in you all those years ago when life was good, but now it's impossible. Look at where I am. He keeps his heart pure. And the same gift and the same anointing that was on him as a teenager, when he's in prison, two guys come to him. He interprets their dreams. One's a word of destiny, the other doom. Both come true. They go out and then uh, Pharaoh has some dreams. And the one whose word of destiny he remembered, he said, there's a guy in prison called Joseph. And this was two years later. The people who, he, who were released from prison, whose dreams he interpreted, forgot about him for two years. Again, he didn't stew in bitterness and brokenness and pity. He actually uh, cultivated the gifts that he had been given to the extent that in prison, the wardens put him in charge of everything. Wherever he was, whether he was a slave or imprisoned, he always rose to the top. Such was the favor of God on him. Why? Such was the congruence of private and public life. And so when Pharaoh does have a dream and Joseph's able to interpret it for him, he actually gets raised not only to one of Pharaoh's mates, but second in the nation, a visionary for Pharaoh, an apostolic influencer over a whole nation that actually would deliver the nation not only from drought, but all the nations around it. I was talking in the early service about the ship, the boat that Jesus was in on a lake on the way to the Gerasenes region. And there's a throwaway phrase in Mark 4.36 that said there were other boats with them on the lake. So that when the storm was stilled by Jesus and his disciples in that boat, all the other boats would have benefited from him stilling the storm. And so the favor of God and the influence of God in us and through us actually affects others in the way that it did with Joseph. His process got him right to second in the nation where he could actually uh, administer the justice and apostolic vision, saving not only his nation but the other neighboring nations from complete famine. This was the process God had him on, but actually, that, I mean, that happens in like five chapters in Genesis. Those five chapters were 17 years of process. And actually, the vision and the dreams of ruling and reigning, not only was it fulfilled once at the pinnacle as he was Pharaoh's second-hand man, but actually, second-hand man? Right-hand man. He wasn't a car salesman. Right-hand man. And um, it would have been chariots in those days, wouldn't it? Um, and um, what was your point, Pete? The point was the word had been fulfilled twice already in his life, where he was ruling and reigning in Potiphar's household, went down. Ruling and reigning in prison, went down. Ruling and reigning in Egypt. The very things that we think are delays or setbacks in our process are actually God giving us the skills and developing us into the people of congruence and gravitas that we need to be so that when we reach the promise that he's called us into, we actually have the character, we actually have the integrity to go with the anointing that he's put on us. Therefore, the process precedes the promise. 
So what is the DNA that he's put in you? What are the dreams and prophetic words that have been spoken over your life? What are the, what are the, the, the bubbling up dreams that you've got or even the dreams that you have pressed down and kind of thrown away because you thought they seemed a bit naive and stupid? But actually, if you're honest, the Spirit's speaking to you right now and he's beginning to say, those aren't stupid. I'm resurrecting those old dreams. What are they? Because God will use them in your process to bring about not only your own personal destiny, but to bring about apostolic influence in a nation. Amen? And so, if there's a delay in your process, let me tell you why. God is using every delay in the process. There's some of us who might be sitting here thinking, that's great, yeah, but I've been waiting 30 years for this, or I've actually lost hope. Well, let it be known that God is using every delay for the sake of relationship. In the delays in Joseph's life in ruling and reigning, God used every delay to bring him closer, to test his heart. And actually, at the end of the day, what you learn in adversity will become your life message. Whatever you learn in adversity from God, about God, going closer to God, that will become your life message. In Isaiah chapter 26, there's a peculiar passage that I think was for the sort of cooks and chefs of this world, but I'm going to read it to you, and you'll think I've lost it, but hopefully we'll get something out of it. Isaiah 28, 27, and 28. Caraway is not threshed with a sledge. Did you know that? <laughs> Nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin. Caraways beaten out with a rod and cumin with a stick. Grain must be ground to make bread, so one does not go on threshing it forever. Though he drives the wheels of his threshing cart over it, his horses do not grind it. I haven't completely lost it. But it's a slightly random passage, isn't it? But actually what this is telling us is that there is a sweet smell of process. Crushing and milling spices, grains and seeds. When you crush and mill, what do you do? You're actually reducing the size. You are, you are, you are, you are doing a sort of um, almost what seems like a violent or painful act against those grains, seeds, and spices. But in doing that, what happens? You release the aroma. And as you release the aroma, the longer the process of crushing, graining, and milling, the, the greater the aroma will be. And so we need to trust that the process may be longer than we would like, but that we need every last minute of it, every last bit of it, to grow into the conformity and likeness of Jesus. And here's the other thing. The passage, I don't really understand it fully, but what it seems to say is there are different processes for different grains and spices. Do not compare the process God has you on to that that he's got somebody else on. Do not think this morning that because he's not called you to Manenberg, you are somehow not as hardcore or radical. Absolute rubbish. As I say, it's the most logical, reasonable response to what God has revealed to us through not only reading the Bible and praying and chatting, but also the individual and unique bespoke process he's got both Sarah and I on. And each of our processes, this is the similarity, it will necessarily involve a breaking and a crushing. I'm sorry to say it, but I'm not sorry to say it. And if we think that that is God being harsh, then we need to learn a, a lesson from um, a, a, a pebble, in fact. Imagine a pebble in a river. 
There was, a guy, there was an Indian guy, an Indian uh, Sikh called Sadhu Sundar Singh, who uh, in the late 1900s actually came to, late 1800s, came to faith in Jesus the night that he was about to commit suicide. And Jesus appeared to this Sikh holy man who was depressed. And he became a follower of Jesus and then got the nickname the Apostle with the Bleeding Feet because he traveled without shoes so far throughout India and Tibet sharing the good news of Jesus. And what Sadhu Sundar Singh said to his followers was, imagine, and he picked out a pebble from a stream and he asked them, is this pebble wet? Now it's not a trick question, what would you say? Sure, it's been in a river for years, of course it's wet, stupid question. He then takes the pebble and hits it against another rock and it splits in two. And he takes half of it and he shows them the inside. And of course, the inside of the pebble is bone dry, right? So is the pebble wet? Yes. Why? Because it was in the river. But actually, internally, right at its core, is it wet? No, bone dry. And he used that as a picture of what the church can often be like. And it's only as God picks us up out of the stream, the stream of the church and the stream of ministry and the stream of cell groups and prayer groups and Bible studies, which are all wonderful and are keeping us wet, as it were, as these little pebbles. And he picks us up and smashes us against the rock and we break in half and picks us up and smashes us again and we break into smaller and smaller pieces and then he can gather them up and he can put them back in the stream and how much more of the stone is wet now? We've got to see that the crushing and the milling uh, uh, and the breaking of us is actually the kindness of God to grow us into all that he has for us. There's a lady uh, called Elizabeth Kubler-Ross who said, the most beautiful people we've known are those who have known defeat, known struggle, known loss, and have found their way out of the depths. These people have an appreciation and understanding of life that fills them with compassion with gentleness and a deep loving concern. And then she just said this, beautiful people do not just happen. There's a beauty in the process God had for Joseph. There's a beauty in the process he's got for us in Manenburg, despite relapse and death and tragedy and death threats, despite not knowing where those guys have relapsed who we embraced as sons are. I heard a great definition of love once, and it said, love is just giving somebody the power to crush you and trusting them not to. Now, because we know Jesus is good, if he crushes us, we know it's good, but often we do get crushed by our fellow humans, and we're trusting them not to each time, these addicts who come and live with us, and we're trusting them not to, and they do, and our journey is one of maintaining a soft heart but growing a thick skin. But so often, aren't, don't we, we have a hard heart and soft skin. We're hard-hearted and kind of cynical, but we're easily offended. This is one of God's greatest gifts to us in Manenberg, living with these young men who are the least cynical guys you could ever imagine, that we have the soft heart and hard skin, hard skin against all their threats and stupidity, but soft hearts as we reparent and father them into, hold, into wholeness. And I want to end with this because um, I'm really bad at ending, but I'll try. I want to end with this. Um, someone once asked Sarah and I, um, well, how successful are you? I don't know if you've ever been asked that in your work or if you've asked yourself that in your parenting or leading of church. Or It's a fairly natural question to ask, isn't it? Why would you not ask? You know, it's good to be successful. 
self-made person. Great, we raised them up, so legend. And my heart sank at that question because we just had a bunch of runaways and were feeling pretty low and feeling kind of pretty knocked around. And Sarah just eyeballed this person who was also incidentally one of our funders and said, um, we're 100% successful. I could, feel, I could feel my palms getting a little sweaty. I was thinking, I don't know what she's talking about. How do we, how do we rescue this? And then she goes, God's never asked us to open a rehab. What God, what God asked us to do was to move into Manenberg and open our home for the most violent and addictive young men whose society have written off. And as they come into our home, to let them know that they belong in family and tell them about the love of Jesus and live out the unconditional love of the Father. And we have done that and we are doing that. And every single young man who comes to live with us hears that and receives that. And they might leave with no faith and very little hope and relapse, but at least they have been loved. And so my encouragement to all of us in the middle of process and in the middle of messiness, and maybe pain and maybe hurt and maybe feeling crushed and kind of let down or overlooked by God, is that the length of the process he's got you on is his highest compliment to you. Because in the delay or in the length of the process in your life, he's doing the most work. The higher the call, the clearer the revelation. The more work he's doing in you to conform you to Jesus, the longer the process. The process precedes the promise. And so then we don't have a six-month view of things. We don't even have a six-year view of things. We have an eternal perspective where we say, well, we don't do what we do because it's effective. Oh, no, you've got that wrong. Is the transformation of Manenberg and society our main driver? Oh, no. Do we want to see that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, what's the driver? Well, the driver is the beauty of Jesus. As we behold his face and pray to him and lament and cry out to him and speak his authority over systems and societies, absolutely we want to see all of that change. But it's the face of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus, and the promise of Jesus that when we behold him, we will be like him. And as we become like him, we become less fixated with what success looks like in quantifiable or measurable metrics, how scalable or replicable something might be. And we begin to realize, oh yeah, we don't do it because it's effective, we do it because it's true. And the world, people, the world in Romans 8 is crying out for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. And the way that we are revealed to the world is by redefining the success that the world constantly and continually craves as conforming to the likeness of Jesus through faithfulness to his call, which means embracing the process he's got us on. Amen? So I would love to invite um, uh, Roy and the gang uh, back up to um, kind of plinky-plunk behind me. This isn't emotional manipulation. Promise. It's really just setting a scene, a landing strip for the Holy Spirit to encounter you. And there are people in this room who, as I say, are maybe at the beginning of a process, and they think this is so exciting, and it is. It's the most exciting journey you could ever be on. It's called Life with Jesus.
And there are those of us who may have been in the journey with Jesus for a few years and think, actually, you know what? I may have settled. I, I recognize, hands up, I acknowledge I settled. Maybe that's you. There might be others who say, I have literally no idea. I just, I turned up thinking that this was a coffee shop. And if that's you, come to the front and come and know this Jesus we're talking about. And really, whoever you are, if the Spirit's been speaking to you, and I hope you know you have full permission to encounter God, quite apart from what I'm saying. Come up and let's just get praying for each other. Because I think the Holy Spirit really wants to move. And Sarah's got a couple of things. Um, just the first thing that I just felt God wanting to affirm in you as a community, um, sort of riding on the wave of Father's Day, was um, for those of you who currently, your life stage is maybe a little bit more hidden um, in parenting, um, and maybe you're sowing um, the majority of your hours into just being with your kids, um, and for those of you who just are parents in general, or even those of you who are not biological parents or adoptive parents, um, but you have spiritual sons and daughters, I just felt um, God's smile upon you um, and just for you to know how invaluable that love is. What we found with working with these guys is that most of the time when they choose to follow Jesus, it's actually because they feel loved. I'll often ask them and say, what made you decide you wanted to follow him? What was the moment? And they'll just cry and say, I've never experienced love like this. And it's not because me and Pete know how to love well. It's because God's asked us to love them as sons. And so he's taught us how to be mother and father. And even the boys who've experienced the most unimaginable trauma, what we found is if they know who they are, which comes from mother-father love, the identity, the safety that like sort of, you know how like little kids, they'll like experience something new and like run away and then come back to tell like their mom or dad, like this is what I found. Like that's, that, that action is safety. That's saying I'm like exploring something new, but they always come back to that safety position, which is mom and dad. And what we found is that with the people that we work with and the guys that we work with, they actually have the resilience to overcome unimaginable trauma when they have that sense of safety and love that's given through parental love, actually, which is the gospel, right? The whole gospel is the spirit of adoption, saying, come, my sons and daughters, you're mine. Always intended to be, but I give you the freedom of choice. Um, and so I just felt God wanting to affirm in the fathers and the mothers that you're doing such a great job, and you will never know the invaluable hugeness one of the girls in our girl's house recently came up with a phrase, that's so wow. She's just like a second language English speaker and everything she finds, that's so wow. And I just felt God saying, you wanted to release to you guys as parents, that's so wow. You'll never know how much. So that was just the first thing. But um, the second thing, I just felt um, the Lord wanting to minister to people who are maybe in the middle of process um, and maybe um, you've been shattered and you can't necessarily, you're not like at the place where you can see the light in that shattering and that, that, that feeling of process and being smashed that, that Pete spoke about. Um, I just felt um, God wanting to minister to your hearts just to give you a little bit of strength because we've been in a place where we have been shattered and it's really hard to, to see the end of it. and so. I don't know, do you want people to come forward or to stand?
do, um, why don't you guys stand, if you're able, will you stand? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray and then the band will lead us. And then if you want to respond this morning, if you want uh, Pete and Sarah or some of our team to pray with you, then as the band lead us, just come on forward. There's plenty of space at the sides and the front here, and we'd love to, we'd love to do that. But let me pray for, for a second. Holy Spirit, come now. Welcome you among us. Release faith and hope into our lives. Cause faith to rise, hope to rise, courage to rise in us.